0: Yeah, as, as we prepare today, the message that I'm bringing to you could easily fit into either of the three disciplines. But I've chosen to put it in one, but it has serious implications into what happens in your house and what happens in ministry once you step out of your house. So as I get started, let me pray for our time together and, uh, We will take a running start at this. Father, I praise you for this morning. Lord, I praise you that your mercies are new every morning. Father, I praise you that in your goodness to us, you've allowed us to repent. Father, thank you for changing our heart and inclining it to be pleasing in your sight. Father, I pray, Lord, as I speak today, my words would be clear. And Father, that we would leave here today more in love with You and in love with You that our lives would look like an act of worship to You. Father, I thank You for Your Word that we may know You, we may know what's pleasing in Your sight. And Lord, I pray that we would be pleasing in Your sight. And I pray all this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Yeah, I have to say, why am I bringing you this message today? This message comes from a conversation that Jamie and Sarah Demarest and I were having about how do you help a sinner in sin see their sin, and how do you help them change? Uh... It is very easy for what I'm going to say today to flow off my mouth, out of my mouth, in a setting around a table, but a little bit different when I have to prepare. Uh, but this is Bible, this is biblical counseling 101. It really is of what the sanctification process in a person's life is to look like. So. I, uh, I pray that uh, it is very clear what I want to communicate today. We are looking today at verses that I think are going to be very familiar to all of you. Uh, it's Paul's letter to the Galatian church. We'll primarily be looking at the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians 5, and that's verses 22 and 23. But to get to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, I want to quickly get us through the first five chapters for you know what is going on in this in this book what is why did Paul write this letter well Paul's addressing a problem in the church and the problem that is in this Galatian church is very practical and it's very fitting for our society today what was happening in the church is some were falling away and they were they were going to a different gospel And it starts in Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7. And you don't need to go there because it may be familiar to you, but I will quickly read it to you. And Paul is addressing the Galatians and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Here's what's going on. The different gospel is a gospel that you are saved by works. Kind of sound like maybe some of your neighbors. There there are two very popular, for the lack of a better word, religions in our culture that would say you are saved by works, or you're saved by Jesus and your works. So this, this foolishness, and that's Paul's word, But this foolishness that's going on in the Galatian church still goes on today. This book, uh, Galatians, gives us a... He identifies the problem, and Paul does two things. There's two principles that we're going to go through quickly. One we're going to go through quickly, and one is where we're going to spend a lot of time. But there's two principles. First... In this book of, Gal- of Galatians, it's a clear presentation that a, a person is saved by grace through faith. And that is chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And, and I will read that. If you want to go to Galatians 3 14, read along with me. I, I have to know. I'm using NIV. How about you guys? What's the common book that you're using? ESV? ESV? I'm so sorry. Hopefully you will follow with me. Uh, Galatians 3, chapter 1. You foolish Galatians. How, How would you like it if Paul said, Tom, you're foolish. This is how he is addressing this church. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Did you receive the Spirit of God by your works? Or by believing what you heard, which is the gospel? Are you so foolish after being with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it is really for nothing, does God give you a Spirit and work miracles among you because you observed the law, because you, you've done your works, or because you believe what you heard. Verse 6, Consider Abraham, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, Gentiles by faith. This is the amazing thing. This, God just didn't happen upon how he was going to redeem people. This is from the beginning of time. God knew how he was going to redeem sinners like you and I. Verse 10, All who rely on observing the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law... Is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, good works, by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul wants them to understand that works will not be what saves them. Jesus Christ, the grace of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, that is where our salvation is. And the second principle is the sanctification process that takes, takes place in every believer. We will see in chapter 5 that it is a, a chapter about sanctification. And I want to just, to be sure that it's understood, when I use a word like sanctification, I, I want to walk you through the, the salvation of a, of a believer. We are first justified. That happens one time. We are justified. We are redeemed one time. Then, after, after we have been justified... we are sanctified. And that would be a verse like Philippians 1.6, that God is faithful to complete the work that he's begun. Our sanctification is ongoing. It is not based on what we do, but it's based on God working in us, and that's his Holy Spirit working in us. And then finally, we are glorified once, and that's when we're dead, we're in heaven, no more sin, I can't wait so keep in mind we have justification we're saved one time we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about the sanctification process in a believer and after we live this life it's being glorified if you would uh, turn to Galatians 5 we're going to start by looking at the, uh, the deeds of the flesh and then the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life and it's it's, I want to clarify again, it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Verse 16, I want to start there because I want to compare and contrast. I don't know how you are, but I learn best, not by saying, this is what it is, but it's when you tell me, this is what it's not, and this is what it is. And then I say, oh, I get that. So we're going to spend some time doing comparisons and contrasting. Verse sixteen starts with, So I live by the Spirit, and you will gratify the and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. When, when you hear those that list, it kind of sounds like a non-believer, doesn't it? Well, here's the thing. Jeremiah 17.9, which is a verse I know you're familiar with, that the heart is deceitfully wicked. There's times where, as Christians, we could even be self-deceived. There have been times when I have been in a counseling setting where I have sat with somebody up to their eyeballs in some of these sins on this list, and they just don't see it as sinful. They, they justify it. Uh, the, a fit of rage. You don't understand the person I'm living with. You don't understand my circumstances. And, and I think for all of us, it is good warning to recognize what this sinful flesh can do because it's easy to deceive ourselves when we're in the midst of it. If I were God, I would have loved to have justified you once, sanctified you once, you never sin again. But but God wants us depending on him for the remainder of our days. And I think to depend on God and Jesus Christ for the remainder of our days, we need to have our eyes wide open to how deceived and self-deceived we can become. Uh, These deeds of the flesh, and I really want to go through them first because that's not what I I really want to talk about because I think you really understand what the deeds of the flesh are. But there's three categories that these deeds fall into. The deeds of the sexual nature, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Debauchery is kind of a word we don't use much. It would be promiscuity. This could even be addressing how a person would dress. The second area in this deeds of the flesh would be deeds of what I would call as false religion. It's idolatry, it's witchcraft. And you would say, Tom Shirley at Grace Bible Church, nobody would practice witchcraft. Well, I hope not, but idolatry, that's kind of a different story. Calvin says, for speaking of believers, we're idol factories. We, We can sometimes see something that we want that is even good. We want a good marriage. We want our children to obey. We may want something, we elevate it above our obedience to God. It is easy for you and I to create little idols. And the, the hard thing is, you know, we could look at the Old Testament and say, well, how, how lame is this that they were producing these little golden calves? We, I would never do that. But we make golden calves too. And... We, we need to guard our hearts to recognize, what is it in my life that I want more than God right now? In the third category would be deeds in the human relationship. He goes on, he's talking about hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. He goes back, I think, to false religion. I think drunkenness is idolatry, that you you think you deserve to be away from your pain or whatever purposes somebody might go get drunk or go get high. I, I believe drunkenness is a false religion. Orgies goes back to the sexual nature and the and the like. That That's everything that is sinful will fit into what I believe these three different areas of what are deeds of the flesh. What Paul is saying that prior to conversion, what... Was, our heart was bent on with sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, eminess, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Uh, and you might say, I, I didn't have every one of those, but surely in our flesh there were some of those. It's interesting, Paul goes on and he gives a strong warning. Look at Galatians 5.21. He says, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This warning is an urgency to flee from this behavior and grow in what Paul is getting ready to say next. You know, there are times where we may know somebody with a profession of faith and we see these deeds of the flesh. I hope what we walk away from today is after we've done D1 and after we've done D2, we're prepared to do D3. And maybe D3 might even be inside of our house as well. And hopefully I will communicate that well to see what our responsibility is as helping fellow believers. Uh, here's what Paul goes on to say. Are you living by the Spirit? And if you say yes then you will not be gratifying the desires of the sinful nature, which is our flesh. The Spirit of God in us is at conflict with our flesh, and our flesh is in conflict with the Spirit. Uh, this does not mean, I want to say it again, because you might look at your life and be evaluating, which I think is a wonderful thing, to the deeds of the flesh. We are not called to be perfect here on earth. We will never be perfect until we are glorified face-to-face, with perfect righteousness. But Paul gives us a wonderful means for examining ourselves and examining our life. So with our eyes wide open, let's compare the fruit of the Spirit, working in a believer with the deeds of the flesh. In comparing, I would like to put it this way. And use the term ministry. Is your ministry ministry is always active is your ministry the deeds of the flesh or is your ministry the 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 fruit of the spirit Paul continues on go back to Galatians 522 and he says but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against these there is no law I like the way MacArthur put it and you contrast the deeds of the flesh with the In contrast with the deeds of the flesh is the fruit of the Spirit. Deeds of the flesh are done by a person's own efforts, whether he is saved or unsaved. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is only produced by God's own Spirit and only in lives of those who belong to him through faith in Christ. We cannot muster up our own fruit of the Spirit. This is God working in us. It is important to observe that the fruit here does not describe, is not produced by the believer, but the Holy Spirit, working through a Christian, catch this, who is in vital union with Christ. The word fruit is singular, and I'm continuing with what MacArthur says, singular, indicating that these qualities constitute unity, all of which should be found in a believer, who lives under the control of the Spirit. In an ultimate sense, this fruit is simply the life of Christ lived out in the Christian. Let let me just take a a sidebar here from what MacArthur is saying. This vital union with Christ, it's a call to shepherd your heart. If, If we are not continually shepherding our heart, we would be foolish to think that there is a vital union with Christ. You might be able to get by for one day. You maybe can slide for two days. But but I know for myself, and, and this is my, my sinful testimony here, I know the first place in my life where I am going to be prone to sin if I am not shepherding my heart is patience. And, and once I have not had this vital union with Christ, and I become impatient, which is not loving, which is rarely self-control, and is rarely faithful. This is a call for for us as a church, for a Christian. This vital union of Christ is kind of, I, I hate buzzwords because sometimes we get so inoculated by them, but it's a call to shepherd your heart. I have to do it daily. You have to do it daily. Paul is describing in the fruit of the Spirit in his life nine areas that in what it should look like. But goes on to say it's important to remember that these are multiple characteristics, but one fruit, and they are therefore they therefore they relate to one another. They are not produced nor can be manifested in isolation from each other. Uh, this isn't like well you know what I'll just choose to be joyful today. You take the niner, they come together. It is impossible for you to be in joy with what the Lord is doing in your life and not be loving, not be self-controlled, not be faithful, not be kind. Uh, before we dissect Galatians 5:22 and 23, I want to read a passage. And I'd love you to go to John 15:1 through 5. And it's uh, what Jesus taught. And I think there's a huge parallel that I want to be sure that we have in our mind as we do this. John 15, verses 1 through 5. I'm sure this is very familiar to you. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I In him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I would tell you again, Jesus is calling us to shepherd our hearts. Jesus is saying, apart from me, you're going to do nothing. Uh, We continually need to be realigning our mind and our hearts with Christ. Let's let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. Each of the characteristics of the fruit we are to exhibit often have one meaning to Christians and a very different meaning to a secular world. So let's see what Scripture says about these fruit in the Christian life. And the first fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Love is not referring to simply a pleasant emotion or a good feeling, but it, love is a willingness to give of yourself. It's a willingness to serve others. Biblical love is an action. In First Corinthians, it tells us that love's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. There, there is an action involved here. It's not boastful. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Uh, when you see love, in, w- love is an interesting word because there's four different Greek words that all got translated love. But I will submit to you, in the fruit of the Spirit, this love is the sacrificial love. And it's the sacrificial love that God exampled in Romans 5.8. He says, but God demonstrates his love for us, while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus' example, we find in John 15:13: greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So sometimes you may be able to get confused of, what is this love that I'm to exhibit? And I would tell you from Galatians 5, chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 22, it's a self-dying willing to die for another. And I I think we find the love that we're to to, uh, imitate is found in 1 John 3.16. And you don't need to go there. I'll read it to you, though. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We're called to die to self. We are called to put other people in front of us. That is what love truly is. I would love to give you a few facts about love. In Scripture, when you see it speaking about God's love, it almost always is talking about what Christ accomplished at the cross. So almost always, when you're thinking of God's love, it is tied to the gospel. It is tied to Jesus Christ dying on a cross, being buried, and raising again. The second thing, when Scripture talks about a believer's love, it almost always, every almost every instance is a dying to self for the purpose of worshiping God. It's not dying to self to be good works. It's an act of worship. And this is really, really, this kind of blew me away. Only two times in Paul's New Testament teaching, does love refer to our love for God? But I'm going to tell you something. This is why it's interesting. In counseling settings, I cannot tell you how many times I have been with somebody that is up to their eyebrows in sin, and they will say, but I love God. Uh, That's not Scripture's point. Scripture's point is not about loving God. It's about worshiping God, but love is dying to self, putting what we want, putting our desires aside for somebody else. And and when I came across that, when I was reading a commentary, and then I, of course, did the word search. Two times it only refers to loving God. So I would encourage you to guard your heart or even as you're caring for one another, when somebody says, but I love God. It's clearly was not the point in Scripture. Uh, Love is an act of worship of of God to love others. The world looks at love as an emotion, a feeling, but biblical love comes from God. It is commanded, and it is an action. When you look, when you examine yourself. Because if you're anything like me, when I examine myself, I'm really good at putting myself in the best possible light. If I am to examine myself and say, well, you know, how have I been loving? And all of a sudden, I can think of these little deeds that maybe I have done. But I, I think it's helpful, because it's helpful for me, so I'm going to assume it might be helpful for somebody. Look at the, the deeds of the flesh. When I cause little discord in my house. Is that an act of love? No. Uh, so it is helpful because I can self-deceive myself thinking that I'm really being a pretty loving guy. I took out the garbage or I unloaded the dishwasher or, oh, I'm just, no, I need to look, I need to compare and contrast. Is this really love? Is my ministry really being loving or is there deeds of the flesh going on there? Uh I I hope that's clear. I I hope the comparing and contrasting is clear because it it is in my heart because I recognize how easy I can be deceived, -deceived. self-deceived. The second fruit is joy. Joy is the deep-down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of a person who knows all is well between him and the Lord. And I just looked at the clock and I realized I better start speaking a little bit faster. So I will. Uh... Joy is not dependent on circumstances. The word joy is found in the New Testament 70 times and almost every time it's signifying a feeling of happiness based on spiritual realities, our saved condition, being redeemed, God working in our life. It is not based on kids that behave, a husband that picks up his dirty socks, any other circumstance. It is Based on spiritual realities, but it's very different than what the world would see as joy. We we find in the in the world, the secular world, the joy comes. Gosh, you can't go through the checkout register at the grocery store, you know, whoever Brad's married to this week or whatever, and they're finding their joy in the sexual immorality. They're finding their joy in, in the deeds of the flesh. But for the Christian, we find our joy in the spiritual reality. No matter what the trial, no matter what the suffering. Our joy is based on the spiritual reality that we've been redeemed. Joy is a gift to believers. It's an inevitable overflow of Jesus as Lord and Savior, working in our life in his His presence. Christian joy is lived out in the midst of trials and suffering, marked by celebration and expectation of God's ultimate victory over the powers in sin and darkness need to do a full stop here on this joy and just evaluate yourself are you looking for joy in the spiritual realities of your redeemed position or something that might look more like a deed of the flesh Uh, there are times where life is hard but this is not a call for us to improve our circumstances it's a call for us to depend on the Lord because he is there I think there's something else that's... I I would regret it if I didn't just pause and say this. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes Christians make is we underestimate the power of indwelling sin. And what I mean by that is we can look at our joy in circumstances and think something other than the Lord is going to bring us joyfulness. And in that... I think, for me, and I think for you, you are not understanding the indwelling sin, how attracted we are in our flesh to sin. This, again, is a call to shepherd your heart. The third fruit is peace, and peace refers to tranquility of mind that comes from a saving relationship with Christ. And I'll tell you, this one blows me away, and it's probably because I'm a product of the 60s, but you talk about a word that has a different meaning for Christians. Yeah, you know, I grew up in the 60s where it was peace, you know. And if you were to go out on the street and ask the average person, what would peace look like? I'm sure it would be no more troops in Afghanistan. It, that's not it. And the mantra for years has been peace. But here's the amazing thing. I'll tell you what, before I tell the amazing thing, I want you to go to John 14:27 Because this tells us a lot about peace. As we live in a world that's looking for peace in circumstances, Jesus in John fourteen twenty-seven, and I like to call this his last will and testament. And here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> if, if your parents passed away and they had a will and they left you their china, at that point when they're now passed away, The china belongs to you, right? It's yours. You now own it. Well, here's what Jesus says in 1427. This is right before he dies. This is clearly his last will and testament. I leave you with my peace. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus didn't have a home. Uh, he had no pillow for his head. He couldn't leave us at home. He couldn't leave his clothes. You remember, they cast lots for his clothes at the cross. He's telling us in fourteen twenty-seven, "I'm leaving you peace." Biblical peace, like joy, is is not dependent on circumstances. Uh, in the verb form, peace has to do with our binding together. Uh, let me let me say this: if you are not feeling peace in a situation. The problem's not Jesus's peace. His peace is per- Scripture says his peace is perfect. The problem is in my head and in my heart. The only way I'm going to correct my head and, and correct my heart is shepherding my heart. It's being open to other people about what's going on in my life. We have. Christ, peace in its fullness if you're not feeling peace and I've been there I know it, I get there and what I have to do when I am not at peace with things going on as I may be meeting with somebody as I'm being an elder in the church being a husband, being a, being a father being a grandfather if I am lacking peace in the midst of my circumstances the problem is right here and right here, it's in my head, in my heart. I want you to consider that. This is not peace like the world sees. Our peace, and this is the amazing thing, almost every, every, every time you see peace in Scripture, check out the context. It tells you where peace comes from. Peace comes from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've Almost every time. It tells us nowhere else if it is using the word peace. It clearly tells us almost every time where it comes from. Uh the, the fourth fruit is patience. And patience is reflected not by easily being offended, it's the ability to put others even when it's not easy to to put them in a loving way before you. Uh God showed his patience by being long suffering with us. Uh, Paul's point is clear. If God has been so long-suffering with us, should we not display the same grace of our relationship with each other? And and I'll tell you, and I'm going really, really quick now because I'm looking at the clock. I I have to guard my heart here on the patience because this is one where it's like the domino. And it starts in my heart with a lack of patience, which is a lack of love. It's a lack of joy. It's a lack of goodness. It's a, it's a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. And we need to be guarding our hearts. Uh, the fifth fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Kindness relates to tender concern for others. It is benevolence in action such as God demonstrated towards men. You know, and this is another word where the secular world would, would have one meaning. You know, I am sure most of you have probably seen the bumper sticker that says, practice random acts of kindness. Uh, you know what makes this a better place to live, but that's not biblical kindness. Uh, kindness, like patience, is a characteristic of God. And here's another thing, guys. Biblical kindness Almost every time you see the word kindness in Scripture, almost every time you read the context, it's tied to repentance. You look at, consider Romans two four, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? We are to imitate God's kindness. We can be, and God does use us, as his children, to be instruments of kindness here on earth. I find it absolutely amazing that a holy God, the creator of everything, would use you and me as his instrument of kindness on this earth. Our kindness can lead, does lead at times, other people to repentance. That's huge. Why would God use a sinner like me? I don't get it. But check the context. You look up kindness, I'm telling you, almost every time you are in a story, something going on with repentance. The sixth fruit is goodness. Goodness is both an upright of the soul. It's an action that's reaching others, giving them what they maybe don't even deserve. It's a characteristic that's produced in every believer by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The word goodness is only found four times in the New Testament. You know, in a secular setting, you might hear somebody say, Oh, so and so, he did something from the goodness of his heart. That kind of comes close to the meaning, but our goodness is a form of worship to God. Let, Let me give you a biblical example of goodness. And it's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And it is Joseph, after finding out. The wife he had not, the gal he had not been intimate with is pregnant. And it says, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had not minded to divorce her quietly. Here's the picture. He knows he's not the father of the child, but thinking much more of, of Mary, he doesn't want to disgrace her. Now, I'll tell you, if this were me, I think I, I don't think that's what I would do. But you see Joseph being a good, righteous man. After even being sinned against, or thinking he was sinned against, put this other person before himself. And I think the place where you and I are going to probably most often have to Exercise goodness is probably when we have been sinned against, in the same way that Joseph may have thought, besides the angel coming and telling him, Joseph, Mary, Mary. Uh, The seventh fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Faithfulness pertains to loyalty, trustworthiness. Our God and Savior is faithful. In manifesting faithfulness, we're emulating God. And, And briefly, God's faithfulness is described in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, because the Lord's great, Lord's great love. We are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness to, to God is described in Philippians 2, and I'm not going to read it, it's verses 7 and 9, but it's how he took on the very nature. Here he is God and he takes on the nature of a servant. Jesus was faithful to do the will of his Father, a picture of faithfulness for us would be uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with secret things of God, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We have been saved in our life, in keeping in step with our re- redeemed state. We need to exhibit faithfulness. Uh, another picture of faithfulness would be Revelation 2.10. And, and this is a bit different than the secular world, the secular person attempting to show faithfulness. Our faithfulness should demonstrate be demonstrated because of our love for God and for others. <clears throat> the, the eighth fruit is gentleness. This also is another one that just blows me away. It's a temper of spirit. Uh, it's not only speaking of a person's outward behavior toward fellow man, but it's, an, it's inward. Uh, gentleness is evidence of God's grace in a believer. Let me, let me explain something. Before I was saved, I thought I was a Christian. If you would have said, Tom, are you saved? I'd say, yes, I'm a Christian. And I remember this time, this guy came to me and he goes, hey, Tom, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. He goes, I thought so. He goes, you're so, you're so gentle. And I'm thinking, hmm. So I become a believer, and I'm, and I'm thinking about that conversation, and I'm thinking, well, what did he see in me that would make him think I was gentle? And, you know, is because I speak with a loud voice? No, that's not it at all. Uh, is it, what is it that would have somebody think that I was gentle? In, in our secular words, we use a word like gentle And we describe toilet paper that way. Oh, it's so soft and gentle. You know, no, that's not what it means. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 5, it says, blessed is the meek, or blessed is the gentle, they'll inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what it is, guys. Almost every time in Scripture when you see the word gentleness, read the context. It is a person stubbornly trusting God. They realize, the gentle person realizes they are not in control. They have no control. They cannot control. They realize that God is the one in control. And they're okay. God, I'll just wait on you. It's being gentle in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of sin. Being sinned against, watching people get sinned against, gentle God, I trust you. Stubbornly trusting God. Evaluate yourself. You know, are you gentle? Are you stubbornly trusting God, or is there some discord and factions and envy? And... Yeah, it is good for us to to look at and compare and contrast. Self-control, the last fruit of the Spirit. It's it's the ability to have mastery over one's desires and passions. In a secular setting, self-control would be the ability to control your emotions, to behave in a way so that you receive an award or you avoid punishment. But biblical self-control has reference to restraining your passions, your appetites. It's restraining yourself from sin. For the Christian... We exhibit self-control to be pleasing to God. It is in self-control that we grow as a believer and growing in the fruit of self-control, we grow in our faithfulness. We cannot be faithful without self-control. All the fruit hinge on each other. I'm going to go really, really fast now. I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, Some practical uh, application. Look at the deeds of the flesh. Uh, Look... Are you prone to sin in any of those ways? Look at the fruit of the Spirit of what you should be putting on if there's something you need to be putting off. Uh, I evaluate myself. I have to evaluate my life. Uh, You know, I realize most, most Christians would say, I'm not sexually immoral. I'm not involved in witchcraft or debauchery. Uh, Some of these sins on this list are a little bit more respectable, and it's easy for us to look at our anger maybe as something that might be fitting. But I I would encourage you, in anger, is it self-control? Is it loving? Are you in joy with what the Lord's doing in your life? Uh, Hatred and discord. How's your relationship with your children, with your in-laws? People in your small group. Jealousy? Do you desire what other people have and you grow discontent with what the Lord's given you? Fits uh, of rage? Would people characterize you as an angry person? Selfish ambition? Uh, I, I need to, and I, I'm going to just jump to wrap this up. We talk a lot about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And I think frequently, and I've kind of in Grace Bible Church, is kind of a unique place where you get a full picture of the gospel. But just kind of, I have tested this with people in the workplace that say they're Christians, or just in different settings, and I'll ask people, you know, to you, what's the gospel? In a nutshell, what's the gospel? And, and people will most frequently, and it's a little bit different in Grace Bible Church, but most frequently they'll just say, well, the gospel is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, and he was buried, and he rose again. And that's correct. But if I told you today, we're going to have Wellspring at Chandler Bible Church, and it's on the 101, that's a true statement, but it didn't get you here. But it's true. So frequently, when people talk about the gospel and we preach the gospel, we may be doing it in a truism, but for me, I have to regularly remember what I bring to the gospel. It's my sin. And I need to evaluate myself in light of what God says my behavior should not be and what it should be. And I need to evaluate what I bring. Because if I'm not bringing what I bring to the gospel, I'm not acknowledging the power of the cross. I'm not acknowledging why Jesus Christ was cursed for all the sin. And it is a wonderful thing for you and I to recognize our sinfulness. And I will leave us at that two minutes late. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, catch me, call me, do whatever. Uh, you didn't miss a whole lot. It was just a little bit of application of applying this. Uh, and I tell you what, I need to take another minute because I see so many moms. One of the things about looking at the fruit of the Spirit, sometimes in, in rearing our children... It's the behavior we want to correct, and we we want action. And I would encourage you, although they may not be saved little ones at this point, it is a wonderful thing to be teaching them God's standards. The goal isn't a clean bedroom. The goal is faithfulness. the The goal isn't being nice and kind to your your little brother, or little sister. The goal is being kindness to help somebody repent. And sometimes it's helpful for us to recalibrate our brain to what biblical meanings are to this fruit because we can bring what we've learned just in what we live easily to it. So I'm sorry I ran out of time. But let me pray. Father, I do praise you.